Welcome to Anchor Point, where we believe that the next 30 minutes could change your life forever. So join us to consider the greatest message ever heard, the good news of the gospel, as well as sound scriptural teaching for believers, all based on the Word of God, the anchor for our souls. Well, today I have a question for you, and it's not a simple yes or no question, and it may require some thought before you answer. Here it is. What is your worldview? Yes, how do you interpret and make sense of how the world around you operates? How do you look at life and circumstances that come your way? We all have one, a perspective about the world, a worldview. But what is the worldview of the Bible-believing Christian? How does a vital connection with the God of Heaven influence our assessment of and interaction with the world around us. In today's program, evangelist and teacher Dr. Sandy Higgins discusses this Bible-based worldview, the acknowledgement of the ongoing conflict between light and darkness, the awareness of God's sovereign control, the focus on the person of Christ. These are some of the characteristics of the Christian worldview that Dr. Higgins takes up in his message. We're sure that you will enjoy his instructive and challenging message today. Colossians 1, verse number 9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, in order that ye may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience or endurance and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom, one of the most lovely expressions in the word of God, the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And then Paul details his relationship to the First creation, and by use of four different prepositions, by him, and through him, and for him, and unto him. And then he details in verse 18 his relationship to the new creation. In verse 19, it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Look down the chapter at verse number 24. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Verse number 27, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Now I trust that God will add his blessing were we to have given out a questionnaire at the door as you entered and ask you to just write down or to choose what is your particular philosophy, you would probably have looked at it and wondered if you were in the right place. Philosophy, that's for university. That's for those who are the great thinkers of the world. And so whether you go back as far as the Aristotles and the Platos and the Socrates or 
leap centuries ahead to the Nitschkis and the Humes and our own day, the Satras and the Camus and so forth. Philosophy, that's got nothing to do with us, does it? But if I were to instead to say a philosophy, say, what is your world view? What is it that controls how you look at life? What is it that takes all of life's seeming events with all of its contradictions, with all of its perplexities, with all of its unanswerable questions? What is it that takes all of that and enables you to put it into some coherent, rational, existable form? Then we'd be talking about a view of life, a worldview. So I want in the few moments I have just to impress upon perhaps mainly young believers, but I think for all of us in the world in which we live, I want to just underline for you what I call a Christian world view. They are the lenses that we apply to our myopic, or if you're my age, presbyopic eyes, to be able to see clearly and to bring into clear focus all the events of life and all the many things with which we deal with day to day that bombard our thinking. Now, some may say, and rightly so, and I had to say this to myself, what we're going to look at is so self-evident, so uh, no-brainer, that why in the world take time to deal with subjects like this? Well, I think it's because whether we look at the educational system, and I'm not downing education, I would be the, one of the last people to get up here and have a right to down education, but the way we are taught to think in our educational systems or whether we are talking about what each of us is bombarded with daily from the media, or whether we are talking about the very climate of, of the world in which we live, everything we will look at as being assailed and attacked and undermined and diluted in some way. And so if we can just afresh stress and underline for our minds the reality of these things to enable us to put life into the focus God intended. So let me then look with you at Colossians chapter 1, at words that thrill our souls to consider and truths that transcend our ability to really to comprehend fully. But I want to look at Colossians 1 and consider with you what I call a Christian world view. First and foremost, obvious to all and yet how much we need to remind our souls, I want to talk about the centrality of Christ. The centrality of Christ. As you read Colossians 1, as you see Paul's words to the Colossian believers, you are reminded of this. There is a purpose behind everything that God is doing in our world. Life has purpose. We are not, this world is not, life is not a roll of a cosmic dice. That somehow things have just occurred. We are not somehow an accident of the great process of evolution. We are here because God has a purpose, and that purpose relates to the great truth of the exaltation, the preeminence of his Son, that in all things he might have the place of preeminence. And so we see that there's a purpose for everything, that there is a goal to which all is moving. History is not some haphazard, some chance sequence of events of life. History is moving to this ultimate, unthwartable purpose of God to exalt, to honor, to bring his son to the highest place in the universe. History is moving to that. It is a tremendous comfort. I don't believe in escapism, and I hope none of us succumb to escapism, but it's a tremendous comfort in a world in which we live, 
with events that are going on around us today and will continue. And probably if the Lord spares us, in 20 years we'll look back and think that the early part of the century was a, a calm and safe time to live. But with the events going on around us today, how good to know, how good to know that history is not out of God's control. God has an ultimate purpose, the exaltation of his son. And I find as well that that gives reality. It's a reality which gives meaning to life. This great truth then that God intends to exalt his son to bring him to honor. It is the true north. You know what I mean by the true north. It's that which that guiding star, that point in the compass that, that guides us through life. That God intends his son to have a place of preeminence for all to know. The centrality of his son. But I want to talk as well about the controlling hand of a sovereign God. How are we to understand the problems and trials of life? Well, I come to Colossians 1. You know how Paul understood it? We read in verse number 24 of our chapter, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. How did Paul deal with the seeming trials, difficulties, perplexities of life? I mean, reality is here's Paul, the most, and I, I think uh, we would be right in making this assessment, the, the most useful of God's servants at this point in time, perhaps the most useful servant ever. And he's confined under house arrest in Rome, limited in his scope of service, his movements hindered. He says, I now rejoice. And I can see the sovereign hand of God behind all of this. It's what makes prayer valid. We might as well close our prayer meetings. We might as well cease to bend our knees if there is not a sovereign God in heaven in absolute control. And so Paul says, since I heard it, I don't cease to pray. And he says, now you Colossians in chapter 4, he says, praying, and when you're praying, don't forget to pray for me. And he says, there's a man who is very, very devoted to you. His name is called Epaphras or Epaphras, however you want to say it. And he is laboring. You know how he's laboring? Fervently in prayer for you. You see, if there is no sovereign God in control, if somehow we are mere victims who are at the whim of all that is around us and the circumstances of life, how helpless, like corks bobbing on the vast ocean, totally at the mercy of every current that would take us. Paul says, no, there is a sovereign God in absolute control. It's what takes the problems of life, puts them into perspective. It's what takes prayer and gives it value and gives it meaning. It's what takes the perplexities of life. That a believer can look up to a throne to see a God not only of love, a God of mercy, a God of kindness, a God of individual interest, but can look up to a throne and see a God of awesome power and absolute control. The centrality of Christ, the controlling hand of a sovereign God. But Colossians 1 reminds me as well of a conflict going on, a conflict between light and darkness. Paul says, giving thanks unto the Father who has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Who has delivered us, has transposed us, has crossed over the line from the kingdom of the power of darkness. So there is in our world today a conflict. That's how we view life. This is a Christian worldview, a conflict between light and darkness that is going on all around us. So let me just from that draw one or two vital lessons. There is the existence of absolute truth. 
Did you get it? Do you see it in the passage? There is something called absolute truth. There is what is called light. And it is an absolute contrast with darkness. Absolutely different. Now, let me just make the confession that we have to confess. The difficult ethical questions, and you're bombarded with them and confronted with them in every university course in philosophy or ethics or sociology. The difficult ethical questions, the shades of gray, the things that men grapple with, they exist. They are very real. But they don't negate the existence of absolute truth. There is absolute truth. The problem we have is not that somehow the truth is not absolute. When I am faced with a difficult question of ethics or right or wrong, moral dilemma, the problem is with me. The problem is my lack of knowledge of this book. It's never with God. God is never insufficient for the question. The problem is I am insufficient for the answer. I don't know my God well enough. That's the difficulty. So when you are faced with difficulties, never think for a moment that that somehow undermines the fact that there is light. This epistle from which we have read, this very first chapter, in fact, it speaks of the word of truth. It speaks of the truth of the gospel. And so there is absolute truth in the word of God. And there is darkness in the world. So please do not begin to think that somehow truth is not absolute. Truth is not always true. You know what I mean by absolute truth? Maybe, maybe we need to be careful and just to qualify what we're saying. It means that what God says is wrong is always wrong. And what the word of God says is right is always right. That truth is not relative and somehow bends with circumstances and need. The word of God is clear. There is the existence of absolute truth. But we're reminded as well of the opposition of an adversary. There is a kingdom of darkness. Evil is not simply the, um, the result of, of weak men. And evil is not even, not even the result of just wicked men. Ephesians 6, if you'll just let me jump into a sister epistle for a moment, reminds us of the carefully thought out strategies, the wiles of the evil one, of Satan, that there is a world in which you and I have been placed and the grace of God has sent us back into a world that is marked by the wiles of Satan to seek to undermine everything that is of God. That's the world in which we live. That's the atmosphere of the university where you attend. That's even the atmosphere of the office in which you work or the neighborhood in which you live. Carefully thought out strategies. There is the existence of absolute truth. There is the opposition of the adversary. We could take time and look at how he's opposed to God's revelation, opposed to God's redemption. But let me just come to the outcome that is assured, though. We are not talking, when we speak about a conflict between light and darkness, we're not speaking about what philosophers call dualism, that there are two great forces at work and the, the conflict is going on and the end is in doubt. That's dualism. No, there is no doubt about the outcome. No doubt. God says he was pleased. It is absolutely the will of God that Christ be supreme. You see, we read there in, at the beginning of Paul's prayer for them, that they might be filled with a knowledge of his will. This is not God's individual will for your life. This is God's will for his son. That's what Paul wanted these Colossians to know, that God's will for his son 
is ultimate, absolute, unqualified, unconditional victory. That's the side you're on today. That's the Savior you've embraced. That's the one grace has given you to, to share with him that tremendous glory. There is then this conflict between light and darkness. There is the consistency as well, a consistency of knowledge and behavior. Paul says, I want you to know these things so that you will walk worthy. God expects us to move in the good of what we know. And so all around us, we see tremendous profession and no reality. The very ones that promote and that preach the loudest of Christianity on the airwaves and elsewhere have failed in the consistency between knowledge and behavior. And so Paul says, I want you to know so that ye might walk worthy. Now, how is it with you and how is it with me? A life consistent with what we know, with this tremendous Christian worldview that we maintain, with all the light that God has given us relative to his son. If I know that God's ultimate purpose is the enthronement, the exaltation, the honor of his son, is my life consistent with that? The consistency of behavior with knowledge. God has a goal for your life. Would it surprise you if I said and talk about culture shock? Okay. God's goal for your life is not to make you happy. Do you get it? Can you handle it? Big enough to take it? God's goal is not to make you happy. God's goal is to make you holy. And if it takes a few tears, if it takes a few disappointments along the way, if it takes a few bumps in the road, if it takes a few things that you think just don't make sense in my life, if they help to make you holy, they're accomplishing God's greatest purpose for you. Consistency of knowledge and behavior. This chapter reminds us of a coming age of eternal glory. The power of his glory, he speaks of, giving them strength. It adjusts every value. It focuses our vision. Paul says it validates my service as well. It's what gives my service value to present every man perfect in that coming day to think of standing at the bema. And I have brought men to a knowledge of Christ. It's what validates my service. He reminds us it's the concern of a redeeming God that he is in the business of saving souls out of the world, bringing them to a knowledge of Christ, bringing them into his kingdom, into the kingdom of light. Do God's concerns concern me? Do God's concerns concern you? That's a Christian worldview. But let me just close with one remaining thing. You perhaps would add to the list here as to a Christian worldview. Let me just mention one other. Confidence in the Word of God. Confidence in the Word of God. It's absolute accuracy. Paul says in verse 5 of this chapter, he speaks of the word of the truth of the gospel. It's absolute accuracy. It's truth. We can come to this book with absolute confidence in its accuracy. But Paul says not only its accuracy, Paul says, I need to tell you also about its absolute authority. This book is authoritative. It should control my life. And so Paul says when he is speaking that it is what God has revealed. The mystery hid for ages, he says, to whom God would make known. This is God speaking, he says. This is God's authority, not Paul's. Do you come to your book recognizing its absolute authority? But Paul says something else about this book that controls a Christian worldview. Paul says, I want to tell you about its absolute adequacy. 
It is absolutely sufficient. He says, the reason I am preaching, he says, the reason I am announcing the truth that I am and warning every man and teaching every man, he says, because the word of God is, is what will present every man absolutely perfect in Christ. He says, I've got absolute confidence in this book. Do you have confidence in the word of God? That's part of a Christian worldview. It's authority, it's accuracy, it's adequacy for every aspect of your life. That's part of what it means to have a Christian outlook on life, a Christian worldview. I guess I forget, I'm in Canada, so you would all know the name of uh, Lord Nelson, one of Britain's great naval heroes, perhaps Britain's greatest naval hero, maybe Drake would be above him, but nevertheless, it was at the Battle of Copenhagen, and Nelson was not yet in charge of the fleet for the British, but he was in charge of his own particular ship. The battle lines were drawn, ships were in battle, and the admiral of the fleet gave the signal as the British were having difficulty there at what was called the Battle of Copenhagen, that, that the British were actually being defeated initially in the naval encounter. The admiral of the fleet gave the flag to fall back, to retreat. And one of the officers turned to Nelson and said, the flag has been raised to retreat and to cease firing. Nelson took his spyglass to his eye, an eye that had been blinded in service for his country, for Great Britain. And as he held the spyglass to his blind eye, he said, I see no flag, fight on. And as a result of Nelson's endeavors that day, the British carried the day and won the battle. God give us all an eye that is blind to everything around us that would distract, that would amuse, that would call us away. God give us a single eye, an eye that sees life as God intends us to see it. Having above all the centrality of Christ upon our souls, having as well a consciousness of the controlling hand of a sovereign God, as well understanding the great conflict that exists in our world between light and darkness, assured of the ultimate victory and the ultimate purposes of God, an eye as well that recognizes the consistency of behavior with knowledge, recognizing God's ultimate purpose for my life, not happiness, but holiness of life, a life as well, an eye that sees a coming age of eternal glory, and one as well that has absolute confidence in this book that God has given us. God help us to maintain a Christian worldview that we might honor Him as a result of that view controlling my life for His glory. Yes, how important it is for the Christian to maintain the Bible's worldview as we move through our lives day by day. It not only brings glory to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it also preserves our lives by giving us a stable and secure outlook on what is happening in our world. What a wonderful confidence it gives us in a world that is so insecure and out of control. What tremendous insight it provides us in dealing with life's problems and perplexities. And what definite hope it gives us as we look into the future and God's ultimate purposes and fulfilling all that he has promised. If this or any of our Bible messages here at Anchor Point has made you aware of God's interest in you, or if you'd like some literature or a visit that would help you to understand these important truths, why don't you drop us a line at email at anchorpointradio.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're glad that you were able to join us at Anchor Point today. 
Anchor Point is sponsored by Christians who are meeting in various gospel halls. Each of these Christian assemblies holds gospel services every Sunday night, as well as regular prayer and Bible studies throughout the week. No collection is ever taken, and a very warm welcome awaits you. And if you've been challenged by today's message, would like to know more about the truth of the gospel, or of gathering under the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, following New Testament principles, please feel free to check out our website at anchorpointradio.com. There you will find more information, as well as the location, programs, and meeting schedules for the Gospel Hall nearest you. Also, feel free to take a look at other literature and audio offers at anchorpointradio.com, where you can also subscribe to our Anchor Point podcast. My name is John Sharp, and thank you once again for listening, and we invite you to join us again next week at the same time for Anchor Point, where we believe that in times like these, you need a Savior. And in times like these, you need an anchor.